Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 621 of the Survival Podcast. It's a Thursday, March the 10th, 2011. March the 10th, guys, that means a third of March is gone. Telling you, time marches on. I hope you're marching with it toward independence and liberty. If you're not moving forward, you're moving backward. There's no one that stays still in life. It's up to you which direction you're going. Um, but today we're going to have a great show. This is continuing our uh, our four-part interview series. And today we have Steve Palmer, uh, president of ShelfReliance.com. Again, ShelfReliance.com. Steve's going to be with us to talk about his company, why he founded it. And he's going to give us some insight into the long-term food storage industry and some of his thoughts on some of the bigger threats that are out there in the world, though. Before we bring them on, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure the show is here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, even a week like this where I'm gone, and I just doubled up the week before I left to make sure you guys didn't miss a beat while I was out of here. So even though I'm up in Arkansas right now, probably looking at some office space because we're going to need a little office up there for the Survival Podcast. Um, it's going to cost us less than bringing in any kind of really good satellite internet, any kind of professional-level satellite internet to do that. So we're setting up a world headquarters in Arkansas, possibly today, but yet the show is here for you. I try to never leave you without a show unless I absolutely have to. Uh, so today's show is going to be a great one. We'll have Steve on in a second, but the sponsors are a big part of what makes that happen, along with the supporting users. Sponsor of the day number one today, Fortress Self-Defense Consultants. That's Frank Sharp Jr., the guy we had on yesterday. You know, a lot of people think, I need another gun, I need another gun, I need another gun. I often think, maybe you need some firearms training. Even if you really know what you're doing with a gun, even if you've shot weapons all your life, even if you've hunted hunted since you were you know, knee-high to a grasshopper, uh, even if you were in the military, even if you were in law enforcement, it always helps to have more training when it comes to dealing with something that's capable of lethal force. So check out Fortress Self-Defense Consultants, and remember, if you can't get to them, if you have a large enough group, they will come to you. So think about using them to put together your next firearms defense training event. All right, next up today, silverandgoldshop.com, the wonderful Mary Beth Maidmont. You guys call her wonderful, not me. Well, not that I don't call her wonderful, but... You guys are where I got that from. I get so many emails. Mary Beth is wonderful. She did this for me. She did that for me. All I know is that I get the very coolest and best silver rounds I've ever found anywhere at great pricing with great service from silverandgoldshop.com. It's just a pretty good, uh, for pretty cool gold products as well. So check out silverandgoldshop.com. And remember, not only does gold and silver belong in your personal investment portfolio, but an ounce of silver is only about 30 bucks little bit and change right now. Um, there's a lot of you guys that have nieces and nephews and kiddos and stuff like that in your lives. And they have birthdays and events and all. And everybody brings them these plastic toys. Why not put silver dollars in their hand? Explain to them how the value of that silver will grow as they grow in their life. Uh, that might leave a little bit more lasting impression than something from Tyco or Mattel. 
Uh, next up today, uh, remember to check out our forum. Maybe I don't say it often enough. We have one of the most awesome forums online. Great discussion forum. Every topic you can think of with self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, prepping, hunting, fishing, gardening, permaculture, you name it, it's there. People that want to connect with you, friendly folks that will share what they're doing, what's working for them, and what's not. Great place to, to uh, meet people. A lot of folks have formed real-world relationships at our forum and for, uh, formed lifelong friendships as well. So check out the Survival Podcast Forum. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on You Guessed It Forum. Um, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members. Uh, I'll leave it at that today. I also want to remind you real quick before I bring on... Uh, Bring on Steve that uh, we are running the five book challenge with Gary Vaynerchuk. You buy five of his books, you email him a receipt, and you get on a one-hour private call uh, with Gary and myself and only the other people that have done that, and this will not be published anywhere. Uh, and this is for you guys with blogs, entrepreneurs, anybody out there that's trying to build your own business online or offline, you're going to want to take advantage of this. So what do you do with the extra four books? You give them away to people in your business circles and use them as networking tools. Uh, it's a small price to pay for an hour with Gary. Uh, Fortune 500 people, uh, companies pay thousands of dollars to get Gary for one hour. And uh, I think it would be really advantageous to take advantage of this. Full details about this are available in Monday's show or a blog post that I put up about it. I'll put a link in that, up to that blog post um, in today's show notes. And with that, uh, as I said during the earlier part of the intro segment, we're fortunate to have with us today Steve Palmer, who is the f co-founder, actually, of ShelfReliance.com. Steve, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. I'm excited to be here. Steve, you know, kind of what I wanted to lead off with is just, you know, I want to talk a lot about what you guys do, but I want to talk about how you ended up doing what you're doing and running a company like this. I'm an entrepreneur, and I've done a lot of different things in my life, and I'm finally doing what I really love. And what I find with entrepreneurial people is we could do anything. We could we could be in the business of selling tires or jack stands or car parts or computers or or anything. But you're in this this business of of helping people with their self reliance and, and self sufficiency and being prepared for the unexpected and things like that. How did you get into this world and and why did you end up you know making it kind of your, your basically your last work? That's a great question. We get that we get that as you would imagine. Um, my business partner and I, we actually came from a very different background, different industry. We were involved in, uh, especially, uh, you know, if you're familiar with the area that you live, there's, a, there's a, a, quite a need for pest control out there. And we worked for Orphan Pest Control for several years as a um, door-to-door salesman. That's what we did. It was actually a third, a third company, a third-party company that did it. But we did direct sales door-to-door, -door, and that was what we thought we loved, and, and that was kind of our niche. Um, we decided we wanted to go out and do something on our own, and so we had a non-compete and needed to wait that out for a while before we could start up a little company where we were selling pest control. And in that time, we realized um, that we needed to do something else for 18 months, and, and so Jason, my business partner, had this idea of, of trying to build a shelf that rotates cans of food. Everyone's had that problem where you find food that's expired and you, you you toss it out and you realize how much money you've lost. All of us do that, whether it's fresh food or it's even canned food that you've let expire, you know, those bloated cans you find in the back of your pantry. So he'd been working on this problem for a while, and he showed me this great big wooden shelf that he had. And he had probably spent, I don't know, how many thousands of dollars perfecting this wooden shelf, and it weighed, I don't know, a 1,000 pounds. It was a monster. It was made out of sheet, uh, 
some sheet metal and it had some uh, plywood and some dowels. Basically, it was real loading. You had to walk behind it, and, and, and you would put a Campbell soup can in it, and it would roll down to the front. And uh, we looked at that for a while and thought, there's got to be a better way to build this and maybe even mass produce them. So we, over the course of the next six months, we invested pretty much everything that we had into this shelf, all of our earnings that had come from this company we worked for for several years. And uh, after six months and a lot of grief and headache, uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, we had come up with this prototype that we really felt people would be excited about, the shelf, which I believe uh, really now we call it the harvest. That's the, the most popular shelf that we carry. And um, I think we went through 17 different prototypes before we got that to the point where we felt it was ready to market and felt comfortable with it. Interestingly, we just relaunched that product. It is getting an 18th uh, revision that will be coming up here in the next little bit that makes it even that much more stronger. Um, but we found that people really liked the shelf, and we finally opened our doors and, and decided to uh, make it official and start our business. People came in and said, wow, I've been looking for that for a long time. That solves a problem I had, and, and we'd hear that over and over. And, and the other thing we heard was, I've had that idea a long time, and uh, you guys stole it from me. I think everyone's looked at that and thought it's pretty common sense. <laughs> I find a lot of humor in that. You know, that was my idea, and you stole it from me. I... Uh... I, those, those types of people seldom end up actually doing anything with their ideas. Well, most of the time it was with a little bit of a smile on the cheek of, you, know, you guys did something everybody else has been thinking about. Okay. So, but uh, we, we like I say, we launched it, and after about a year of doing this and realized how excited people got about these products, we kind of lost interest in doing anything else. We realized that we really liked helping people prepare and finding ways to be more innovative and creative and storing their food. And, but very quickly, uh, what happened was people would walk in and say, now, wait a second, you guys sell the shelf, but you don't sell any food. Isn't that kind of like walking into a sporting goods store and buying a bat, but you can't buy a mitt or a ball? I mean, that makes no sense. Uh, but we weren't real excited about what was out there in the market for food. It was it was this, uh, and I, you know, I won't name names. I'm sure that's terrible. But, you know, it's just kind of this gloom and doom, hide it under a shell, uh, under a, um, your, your basement or under your steps, and, and no one ever uses it. Heaven forbid you should have to use it at the end of the world. And we didn't love the message that was out there. So, again, spent about another year and, and uh, really worked closely with the marketing company to come up with a brand that we felt would be exciting that actually would be used, that people would be excited about that would taste good. Uh, so that's where Thrive came from. It, it took another year or so to really get the marketing and the research that we wanted and find the right foods, but we just didn't want to be like the other companies. We didn't want to be the ones beating the drum that, uh, you know, this this is food that you only use in a crisis, And although we completely believe that. I mean, we believe that you need to be ready for anything. I mean, anybody who doesn't prepare these days is a fool. I completely but agree with that. To, you know, let me tell you about your food, too. Uh, you guys have sent me a couple different samples, and one thing you guys sent me were um, some freeze-dried pineapple. Man, that stuff is good. I, you talk about eating it and not saving it to the end of the earth. Um, I still owe, I can't remember the guy's name I usually talk to over there, a, a review on that, and I've got a little bit of it left in the bottom of the can because I ate almost all of it because it was like eating pineapple candy. <laughs> it, it is amazing. Our freeze-dried pineapple is the best I've tasted. I really like it. I'm glad you enjoy it. And that's really the goal. I'd say that's one of the favorites. There's no question. People love that one. But that, that seems to be the standard we're shooting for with all 
of our foods. We're coming up around 120 different foods that we now carry in either number 10 cans or Mylar bags, and, and that is really our hope, is that people will taste our foods and say, wait a second, this isn't this doesn't seem like what I would expect it to be. It tastes a lot better. So I'm, I'm glad that you had that impression because that's our goal. Absolutely. And I think another thing, I think people, the one thing I wish you guys could do is get more people to actually touch your equipment. I did some videos for you on your racks, and I think people look at it and they see the space in the top and they think it's not that space conscious or, or what have you because they're not sitting right there and they don't realize how much goes into, like I have a Harvest 72 you guys sent me, and the amount of food that can go in there is insane. Um, you also sent me a pantry, a pantry, and I just filled that up on, on a little tabletop, and I showed it on the video, and then I unloaded it. And when you unloaded, it was like the whole counter was full of food, and it fit in this small space. I think they're one of the most space-conscious things that I've ever seen, and they're functional. I love those videos, by the way, that you did. I, I thought that that was a really good representation of how much food those will hold. But we're going to do something similar that you did with the Consolidator series there uh, with the Harvest. And, and, and interestingly enough, back when we finally got that 17th prototype back and decided to go build one of those things out to see how much it could hold, I remember we made a trip to a local Walmart late at night. We were excited to test this thing out. We finally had enough track. And we filled up the whole grocery cart full of food, pushed it through the cashier, and then came back to the office and loaded it up. And we were only about halfway there. So we went back again, same night, loaded up another grocery cart, came back. It still wasn't enough. We were blown away ourselves. We had no idea how much that would hold. And if you can view that, that larger shelf correctly, you'll get over 600 cans of Campbell's soup in there. And, so, and to be able to hold that much in a six foot by uh, three feet wide and two feet deep, I just don't think there's any other way to get that much food in that area. I, I, I can't really think of it either. Steve, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hang out and call you right back. We're getting a little bit of reverb with Skype here, and, and I don't want okay. any of this to be missed. So we just, we'll just roll right back into it, but I'll be right back to you. Sounds good. All right. Was it real bad? There was just parts where you were getting a little skip, and I just usually if that happens, reconnecting is the way to go. So we'll just roll on from there. And you just finished telling me about how much stuff you'd fit in there, and uh, so I'll just I'll just kind of throw another thing at you here, and we'll we'll roll on. Okay. Yeah, I, I absolutely was really impressed with how much it helped, how much weight it could hold, and things like that. But I kind of like to steer the conversation now a little bit toward. The why behind all of the, the the concepts of food storage, you know, eat, we store, store, eat is what I say all the time. Your products let people do that, but there's a reason we're doing this. What are maybe some things that you see out there in in our world today that need to be, you know, kind of an incentive for people to realize that having enough food till the end of the week and the next paycheck is probably not the way to be living. Right. Oh, that's a that's a great point. You know, over the last uh, four years, as we've really gotten into the food side of it, which, which we're really passionate about, I'd say that's, even though the shelving was what put us on the map, the food and the nutrition behind that, the science behind it, that I think is where our passion is at this point and really becoming, I don't think we'll ever stop. I, I mean, we, we just want to be perfect. We want every product to be perfect. But I think so many people in our country are, are I don't know if the word's naive, I, I don't know, I'm just not educated to, to understand how quickly we could see ourselves in trouble. And even though we aren't the doomsday people and we are very careful not to, uh, you know, beat the drum, as I said, that the end of the world's coming and store up now, there, there are plenty of reasons outside of um, the disasters that sometimes we imagine that could, in, in, the, in a micro scale, be a disaster for our families. And, and over the last two years, especially since 2009, 
I've heard story after story from our customers that have called in and said, hey, look, you know, we ended up losing a paycheck because we were laid off and, and a lot of other people were laid off. And, and uh, But fortunately, we had some reserves stored up. We had two, three months of food, and that was just enough to get us to that point where we were able to find another job. Well, that's not usually what we think about when we think about storing food. We think of nuclear disasters. We think of um, something that would be much more catastrophic, and sometimes the most important reasons to store food are the more likely situations, like losing a job. You know, I completely agree, and I, I came up with this whole thing when I first started doing the show to explain that, and it came in, it turned out to be a very complex inverse relationship that I just kind of like glossed over the first time and then got deeper into, and there's a fact about disasters that very few people discuss or understand, and that is the less the less people affected by a disaster so a disaster hits like one nuclear family alone um, is is a job loss or loss of a loved one is far more likely to impact you in your life than a disaster that impacts a neighborhood and then that's more likely to happen than a disaster that impacts a county and that's more likely than one that impacts a state and that's more likely than one that impacts a nation and so on to the whole world and when you see those big disasters you say but but, Jack, those are so much worse when they happen. Well, that's, that's impact scale. So the, the, the lower the probability of a disaster, generally the higher the impact scale, the more severe and the longer we have to deal with it. But day to day, the things that we have to be most prepared for are either going to hit us or us and our neighbors. And the odds that you'll impact one of those disasters before you die, unless you die tomorrow, are almost 100%. You're going to lose somebody you love. You're going to lose a job. How many people lost jobs in the last three years? It's, it's some ungodly number of millions of people. And there's an old cliche. I kind of want to hear what you have to think, what you think about this. There's the old cliche that a man always says about his family. I got to keep a roof over the head and food on the table. And to me, there's a reason it's a cliche. It's the fundamental things we have to do to take care of our families. Right, right. It's the most fundamental thing that in order to survive, those are the things we have to be able to provide. And it, it's too bad that it takes something um, like a, a tsunami or like a, a massive earthquake in New Zealand or in Haiti to really get us thinking about it because, like you say, those are the more impactful things that get us thinking. Man, if that ever did happen to me, I don't know what I'd do with my family. I don't know how I'd keep food on the table. And so we, those are the things that tend to motivate us to go out and buy some sort of reserve. But like you say, those, those are very unlikely to happen. I mean, I mean, it may happen. In fact, there's a percentage of your listeners that for sure that'll happen in their lifetime and it'll be great that they had some storage. But we're more likely to be impacted by those, those on a micro scale, the, the smaller events that just are really catastrophic for just our families. You know, and there are two big ones that I actually worry about, and I worry about them in very different ways. The, the first one, the big disaster I worry about hitting at some point, and I can't think of a better way to, to ensure if this ever happens, is a, a real pandemic. Not this H1N1 nonsense from a year and a half ago where they closed down the Mayfair here and cost the city millions of dollars, and then they had a concert across the street that they didn't camp. Not that nonsense, and every single elected official telling you to sneeze in your sleeve and wiping your hands. I'm talking a legitimate 1917-type Spanish flu pandemic. And that, I think, like, it could happen tomorrow, it could happen a 100 years from now, and, and maybe we're all dead by then, it's not our problem. But to me, that's one of the legitimate, most likely big disasters. And the best thing you can do 
in that scenario is not expose yourself. And the more resources you have in that environment, and maybe it's not a year you're hunkered down. Maybe it's two or three weeks at an acute level. But if you can stay out of the fray during that period of time, your odds of survival, and not just survival, but coming out the other end thriving, um, it goes way up. Jack, you make a great point. <clears throat> and if you look at history, we're well overdue for that. We've been hearing that for years. That pandemic is likely to happen. And that, that is something that, that's a very realistic uh, scenario that could happen in, in our lifetime. Um, I, I wondered for a while there with the avian flu and a couple of the other uh, concerns that, that, that sprouted up over the last few years, I wondered if that's where we were going. And it seems like those things have, have curved themselves off and they're not as big of a, a threat as they once were. But happening in our lifetime, I, I see that as a realistic threat. You know, maybe... maybe some of the other uh, nuclear disasters, and those those are threats, don't get me wrong, but I, I see that, uh, you're right, that's probably one of the bigger threats that we should be worried about. I mean, part of what does that for me is I've studied the flu virus and how it mutates, and I've understood that every other virus does the same thing. And when we think of generations as humans, we think of maybe 50 years as a generation. Uh, or maybe we even think 25 more thinking about demographics, you know, Gen X, Gen Y, baby boomers, tweeners. But it's fairly long. Even if we're something like a dog breeder, we're thinking like, okay, we got to get the pup up to a breeding size adult at two years, and the next generation's two years. A virus literally has generations every 48 hours. And the virus needs in its world one good day to come up with that easily transmitted, highly lethal strain. And it's mathematics that sooner or later, that's going to occur. And like, you know me, I'm like you guys. I'm not like, run out and, you know, be ready for, uh, you know, Armageddon tomorrow. But if we're not aware of that, and the reason I like to talk about this threat, even though I don't like the consequences of it if it ever happens, is I think it reaches people at their core. Because I've had people, why do you do this survival podcast thing? I you know, hand them a business card and you, you think the end of the world's coming. I just simply say, hey, if the government said there's a severe lethal flu and they weren't lying to you, stay put for 30 days, what kind of condition would your household be in at the end of 30 days? And then I shut up. And it's amazing if you let the person talk themselves into it from then, how they just fall right into maybe we do need to do something. Yeah. Well, we, you, you know that a lot of our products are sold through a few big box resales uh, online. And it, it's interesting how sometimes we've had when uh, one of those, those vendors, one of those customers has had a sale on their products, I'm interested that, of how many different news organizations will pick up on that. We'll get um, requests from someone like uh, a Gizmodo or uh, Huffington Post did something on us. And I, I think that they kind of look at us like, I think you're crazy, which is so surprising to me because there's so many reasons to look around and say there's a reason to be prepared. You don't have to think that we're going to turn into Libya, but why are some of those things happening in the Middle East? Well, food prices are very much a realistic concern there. And and, and so no, I, I agree with what you're saying. I'm passionate about preparing people because I know it's a realistic concern uh, that, that likely in the next, who knows, within 100 years, heaven forbid, I would imagine that something serious will happen. On, on the avian flu um, type of concern, I, I believe that that's the, the reasons that we should be preparing. And I don't know why so many people, even in our country, look at us and say, you're crazy. You're, I mean, we, you know, we get labeled these bunker people and different things. And yet, if you, if you get them to sit back and really think about why anyone who's smart would be prepared, it doesn't take many scenarios to realize what type of concerns, what type of threats our country still faces. No, I completely agree, and I think a big part of it is that 
people don't like to have their their little world they've created, the fantasy world in their head, where everything's always going to be okay, disrupted. I've had people like, you know, why should I worry? Everything's fine. And I'm like, well, do you lock your door when you leave your house? Well, of course I do. Why? Somebody could break in. So that they're, they're, they understand that things can go wrong. Or do you carry life insurance and car insurance? Well, yes. And sometimes it's like, I don't lock my door. I don't have insurance. Well, then, okay, well, I'm... I'm going to, you know, not cast my pearls among swine at that point. But there's a lot of things out there, like um, if you look at, like, the economy. And, and, you know, there's the doomsdayers in the econo- economic world, too. The dollar is going to be, you know, end as we know it, and it's going to be destroyed. And, and my response is, well, that's happened five times in the last 110 years. Um, and most people didn't even realize it, but a lot of people got hurt. And when a currency changes... Things happen, and we don't know if it's going to be really bad, sort of bad. We don't really know what it's going to be, but what we do know is the power of that money is declining daily, almost. If we look at what a loaf of bread was in 1980, you know, 30 years ago, it's it's a massive difference. And if we go into like a hyperinflationary period, and I'm not talking about, you know, like the book Patriots or something. I'm talking about double-digit consistent inflation over several years, um, people are going to be hurting for food. And to me, if you've stored up during the good times, kind of a capital deferral business plan model, it's not even you're living off your preps, but if I can supplement 20% of my needs from my preps, from my storage, from long-term stuff like you guys offer, from the garden, all this stuff together, I can get through that flux period so much better. Sure. I, I don't think um, if you were to speak to, you know, our grandparents' generation, those who went through that Great Depression, they, they would listen to this conversation and say, why would anyone think that's crazy? You know, they lived through it. And, and, and what is their mentality? I used to watch my grandpa, who's, who's now passed away, but I used to watch how he would eat and how he would save and how brutal he was with everything. Well, he, he knew that generation, right? I mean, he had to watch his parents go through that, and he understood what it was to have to be uh, surviving on, on just very little uh, where, where maybe there wasn't uh, income coming in, and where there weren't a lot, there wasn't a lot of food in the cupboards, and and so that that scenario, when you talk about a financial crisis, I think we've probably been lucky to have had so little impact in the last couple of years. It could have been much worse. I don't think we're out of the woods. I really don't. I, I think there's still something that could likely happen in the near future, uh, depending on which economist you listen to. A lot of them are predicting it will happen. Absolutely. I mean, when it, when the whole thing started. Um, I was considered to be nuts by everybody because, one, I said it's coming, so half the people call you nuts right there. Then I said when it comes, it'll bottom, it'll come back into a second uh, upturn. The band will play, everybody thinks it's better, and the second drop, which and I, and I said this is going to be over not six months, not three months. This is over a period of years. It could be four years. It could be six. I don't know, but there's going to be this big cycle, and the second drop will be you know worse than ever before. So then the people that said the drop was coming also said I was nuts because, well, I thought the recovery was coming. And you could call this a recovery if you're in one camp. You could call it not a recovery, but like you said, it's not as bad as it could have been. This is, and the people that think this is like the Great Depression, I kind of wish your grandfather and my grandfather could come back for a couple of days and uh, do what my grandfather called crack them behind the ear and wake them up to the reality that Americans aren't lining up to work for the you know Civilian Conservation Corps. They're not standing in line to get bread and soup. This is not anything like the Great Depression. And I almost think. Some Americans that have become too accustomed to how good it's really been for the past 30 years 
that don't understand what it was like also kind of want an affinity. They, because we know that was the great generation, right? That was the generation that survived the Dust Bowl, survived the, 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 the Depression, and then went off and fought World War II and came back and built the highway system. And we almost want to have, I think some people have like a romanticism. They want to have an affinity there. And I just don't think they're in touch with reality because the stories my grandparents told me, and I'm sure your grandparents told you, nothing like what I see today. Nobody was walking around Twittering on an iPhone in 1936. My, my other concern that's kind of a big one, and I think it's misunderstood, and I want to get kind of your take on it, is, is peak oil. I think there's a lot of people that think peak oil is like, okay, there's the oil pump, and there's no more oil, and it's all gone, and there's never oil ever again. And I think what we're seeing is just world demand outpaced the ability for us to produce, and you're an entrepreneur, so you know this, supply-demand curve. It's a constant. When you cut supply and demand goes up, prices go up, and the impact that could have on the economy, like we were just talking about, on the availability of things. So, yeah, you could still get imported lettuce from Argentina in winter, uh, but it's going to cost you, you know, three times what it costs today and other things like that. Right. No, I agree. I think inflation is already a big concern, but then you start having a, one of our products. In fact, the, the, the harvest, what we were talking about earlier, our tracks, are made out of polypropylene. Well, polypropylene is, is, I mean, one of the components of that is obviously oil-based, uh, as most plastics are. And, and as a result, our prices, we just had our vendor come in just yesterday, and he said, hey, we're going to be raising your prices by 20% on your plastic, just so you know. And that just, out of the blue, 20% is significant. That isn't a small increase. You know, sometimes you, you, you hear about 2, 3, 4%, and that's, that's painful, but 20% out of the blue, and I don't know that's the end. You know, I don't think that's going to change. Now, we, we try to curb that and, and try not to raise our prices for as long as we can. But uh, food prices, as you realize, those are all going up. With uh, uh, as oil goes up, everything goes up with it. So, yeah, I, I agree. That's also one of the threats. You know, you're in a totally different structured style of business uh, for me. So, I want to get your impact on what your your view on what I. Uh, what I've been saying about this, because it sounds like we're in sync with this, what I've been saying is that we are seeing inflation in the grocery store, whether the government says so or not. And if you ask a single mom, instead of an economist that has so much money he doesn't know what to do with himself because he's got a big government paycheck, a single mom trying to raise two kids, if there's inflation at the grocery store, she'll smack you for being so dumb as to ask the question. And so we know it's there, but it is moderated compared to when we look at the commodity indexes. And my feeling, and maybe this is exactly what you're telling me, is the people that are, you know, in your type of a business where you're taking components of a product, putting it together, and delivering it to your end user and your distributor, you're absorbing some of the inflation because the market is tough. And it, but eventually that's gonna have to find its like the like the basketball in the in the um, hose is gonna have to find its way through there and trickle down, and the inflation's here. But right now, suppliers, wholesalers, distributors, manufacturers are absorbing some of it for us temporarily. Is that true? Yeah, I think we as a company always try to do that. If it's something that's going to be short-term, two, three months, even up to a year, depending on the margin of the product, we'll try to keep that internal and not pass it on, uh, really because we're trying to stay competitive and we're trying to still have the same prices. There's usually a little bit more of an outcry from our, our customers. We don't have the luxury of, 
of uh, just sending out an email to all of our customers saying, hey, sorry, 20% increase. It's a little bit different, you know, from from, uh, from the way we're, we're treated with our own vendors. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I think that um, as much as possible, most companies are going to absorb that. I think airlines, they as much as we want to be frustrated about fares going up and they start charging fees for baggage and different things, I, I'm sure they tried to absorb that as long as they could. Yeah, I, I agree, but I also think, like I said, at some point it does have to come out and hit the market. And I think that uh, I think a lot of people are getting false security right now because they they don't see massive inflation. The cost of the box of crackers went up a, a nickel. And like I said, to that economist in, on Wall Street, he's like, "That's not inflation. That's just a variation in pricing." But to mom with the two kids, the nickel matters. The dollar matters. The, that's why she's clipping coupons to save four bucks a week. When you're trying to save four bucks a week, you're in touch with the reality. And I think a lot of these economists would do well to go talk to some single mothers and some small families that are trying, you know, trying to get by. And you know, dads maybe making twenty grand a year. These people are in touch. With, I remember when I was a kid, one of my first jobs. Uh, when I finally got my very first job was in a turkey farm, and I, I never want to go into one again. Um, but my second job was in a grocery store stocking things. And I was a kid, and I was arrogant, and I didn't get it. But, like, the price of milk would go up. And uh, so I just priced the milk, whatever it says on the sheet, you know, and I put the milk in there. And, like, every senior citizen that would come in would go, oh, milk went up again. And, you know, in my arrogance as a kid, I wanted to go, well, here's your two cents, you know. Just fill my pocket with pennies any day it was going up. But now I get it. Now I'm a little bit more mature. I understand that when you're living on an income and that income is not flexible, every increase hurts you. And that's why I think it's so important that people do take emergency preparation steps because if, if, if a quarter matters to you, imagine what $100 is going to do. And if you've got your, just similar to what we were talking about, where a company is trying to absorb as long as they can before they have to pass that on to their, their end users, I think in a, in a similar way, if you're prepared, if you have your own your own home storage and you're able to, to use that when, when things become really expensive, in a way you're able to absorb those costs and not have to, to, to take those on in, in, in ways like your neighbors have to. I mean, things are going to be a lot more expensive for them, but they didn't already prepare and buy sugar when it was on a certain price per pound where it's, you know, so much more expensive. I think the other thing is if you're storing food, you get to do what I call opportunity buy and opportunity not buy. And that means that when, when you have a coupon or when you have a special or when you have a sale or whatever you buy, and when the st items are not on sale or you don't have a coupon or there's not a special, you just don't buy them because if I've got three months' worth of ragu spaghetti sauce or, or Thrive Pineapple at home, I don't need it this week. I can I can wait till that opportunity comes. And you know, you mentioned the airlines. To me, this is just like what Southwest Airlines does. When they get a good price on fuel and all the other airlines are paying bonuses, they buy as much fuel as they can under contract. And then when fuel doubles, they're able to be very, very competitive. And that's that's you know, capital deferral. And that's an advanced economic thing that businesses do. But I think that the average housewife is actually capable of doing the same thing. And food's the best place to do it because it's our variable and recurring and guaranteed cost. Um, I've got a lot of people that love guns on the show, and I'm a huge supporter of the Second Amendment. I think everybody in America that's able-bodied and mentally fit should own a weapon and know how to use it and have it in their home. But I also say this. I eat three times a day every day, and I will till I die. And uh, I've been in like three fights in my life, and none of them involved a gun. So we really need to focus on the food to a large degree. 
And I wanted to kind of ask you some some questions about the food supply issues as well, because um, I know you've got to be in touch with that, the commodity prices of the food, uh, the quality of the food, crop failures. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going out there on out there in that that industry as well, right? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, and you, you bring up another big point that you have to be very careful because what will happen is where a vendor doesn't want to pass on an increase, Sometimes the quality of that commodity starts to go down. You start to cut corners, and you have to be really careful that your own quality control um, catches those and makes sure that your specs that you're that you're asking for that those aren't those aren't diminished as a result of somebody else trying to save on on costs. So, yeah, we're seeing that all of our commodities are starting to go up, and it's it's too bad that when this happens, this is when we tend to see a boom in our sales. You know, uh, during the year Y2K, we weren't in business at that point, but we heard that people. It just just panicked, and, and then after the tsunami, same thing happened. Um, we're now starting to hear a lot of people, surprisingly, really concerned about uh, 2012. It's um, in a survey not too long ago uh, that we had results from 30% are concerned about that. Uh, so the, the thing that you have to say is, well, what are, you, what are you doing now? How Rather than run to the grocery store and say, the end is coming and go buy everything off the shelves, uh, start buying two, three cans every time you go to the store. Just put it away. Just, just slowly, rather than going into debt or throwing it on a credit card or, I mean, some of the, the crazy things you hear, it's just so much smarter to be a little bit more prudent and frugal and just, when it, like you say, if you see uh, a, a can of SpaghettiOs go on sale and it's a, it's a great buy, it's the lost leader of the, the, the market is showing off that week, buy four or five extra cans and tuck them away. Find a way to rotate them. That's the other problem that you have there, but but just make sure that you're not having to, to go buy everything when it's at its most expensive price. Are you guys, um, I mean, when you, you forecast your future business, do you see yourself running into any kind of delivery issues under current circumstances? Because I've just heard from a lot of my audience buying a couple competitors of yours, and you may not want to name them, but I will, because uh, I'm not putting them down or anything. I'm just saying this is the truth. Mountain House backed up 12 weeks right now to order product. Um, Alpine Air available, but forecasting backlog. Um, one of my other sponsors that sells Mountain House said they just got notification that Mountain House said they're only going to fill existing orders. They're not even taking new orders anytime soon. How are you guys on your ability to deliver, and do you know anything about what's causing that? Um, yes, I've heard of a couple of different things. We have heard what you're saying. In fact, if you go to my website right now, one of our second uh, banners on there says we're we're ready shipping within 48 hours. We we forecasted that this was going to happen as as of about uh, maybe late October November. We we kind of had this inclination that things were going to get pretty rough, especially this time of year with the prices going up. Um, I mean, economists were shouting it. It wasn't terrible. on the wall. And so we really doubled up our inventory. We we actually have a very full warehouse right now of inventory. Um, how long can that last? That's, that's a great question, Jack. I hope that we can maintain it and, and continue to, to, to be okay. But we have had moments of, of shortages as well in the past, and it really just depends on how bad it gets and how much people start to panic. And, and I, I keep saying that. I, don't, I wish people wouldn't. I wish people would just, over the long run, just slowly build up and not ever have to be worried about it. But um, right now we're not, we're not forecasting a, a shortage in, in our supply anyway. Um, I've heard a couple of things that, you know, it's probably more hearsay and rumor than anything, but we're, we're hearing that um, because of the different needs, the government is buying up a lot of the mills for some of these companies. Uh, we get lots of emails from customers wondering if we're going to do the same thing and sell out to the government so that they can't buy their, our products. And 
no, we have no intention of that. We have not been approached for that matter, um, and we wouldn't be interested in that. Uh, but I think that is part of it. I think where that supply is taken from the market, and then that starts to speed demand up, right? People start to see that, and it can only heightens that panic, that sense of, of concern that things are bad is uh, is augmented because of, of what's happening with supply. But when you've heard some of the same things, what you're, what you're saying is, is definitely uh, known in the industry that there are a lot of companies struggling to deliver um, because of demand, but also because their suppliers are not shipping product. They're saying, "Hey, unless you are a company that makes it, that buys X amount in a year, you no longer buy from us." Um, it's frustrating. We get a lot of emails from other vendors wanting to switch over to our brand of food just because they don't want to deal with that anymore. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And I, I mean, I also look at it as this is an indication of what happens when there is a problem. Because now there's not even a problem. There's just a perception that there might be a problem. And as soon as people start to buy more, it's like a, a, a downward spiral. Everything goes from bad to worse to worse, and people panic. It's just like we get a, you know, you guys get some real snow out there where you're at. We get, you know, two inches, and you go to Kroger, and there ain't a loaf of bread or a box of English muffins or a gallon of milk in the store over two inches of snow. And it's not that people really think they have to stock up. It's when they see someone else doing it, that internal competitive survival instinct of the human being takes over. They start to behave irrationally. And to me, this is where we get into the difference between storing and hoarding. The storer takes little bits of extra and builds up when there's plenty for everyone. And the hoarder waits till the last minute panics and tries to do it all at once. And they're worried about getting it so that somebody else doesn't. And probably we pay top dollar to do it. Absolutely, the gouging goes out, uh, you know, crazy at that point. I, I love when you ever see, uh, like, like a, a, a box store or whatever. When it rains, they put the, the stand of umbrellas in the front of the store, right by the register, and all of a sudden the umbrellas are ten bucks. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, no, that happens. You, you, if you were to go and uh, just just watch the prices now, you know, some of that is due to inflation, and some of that's uh, oil and different things. But yeah, I think people tend to know. That uh, when when people already have you already have the attention of your customers, you know people aren't likely to do sales at that point. So um, yeah, I, I agree. That's a great point actually between storage and and, and hoarding. I, I like that. I hadn't heard that before. Um, another thing I want to want to get your opinion on was because you're in this industry. Um, I had somebody asking me today about two competitive products, and, and neither was yours, so I won't mention either name, but it was basically Brand A claims a storage life of X number of years, and Brand B only claims a storage life of Y number of years, and otherwise they're very similar products, and they're number 10 can-type products. And I said, go check the temperature spec that they're basing their claim on. And I think there's a lot of confusion probably, because as lower I put my, my temperature spec, the higher I can put my my long-term uh, storability spec. And when people are making those decisions, they need to read deeper than just the, the, the surface, right? Well, you know, you're bringing up actually one of my, my pet peeves. I'm glad you brought it up. I think that there's a lot of, um, I don't know if arrogance is the word I want to use, but I believe that a lot of companies are willing to put a shelf life on a product without having any idea what they're talking about. It isn't easy just to decide what a product's shelf life is. I mean, that takes testing. It takes uh, science, right? It takes uh, it takes somebody who really knows what they're talking about. You can't just decide that because you think it's going to last for 30 years and just put that on your can. And 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 what you say is correct. The the temperature has such an impact on that. I mean, most companies will say, you know, you want to have it at 70 degrees or, or lower. And if you have one of those 
Um, a lot of people have little storage rooms that they build underneath their porches. Basements aren't, I don't know if those are as common where you are, but if you've got a nice cool basement and you can keep that temperature around 65 degrees, your, life, your shelf life of that food has such, such longevity compared to someone who's storing it out in the garage at 80, 85. I mean, there's, there, there's no comparison. The shelf life's going to be a lot higher. I think another thing people need to look at, too, is the servings. You know, I've had this question, too. Well, so-and-so has uh, 37 servings of green beans, and this person has, you know, 68 serving size. You know, what what, is, what calories are they made up of a serving? And, and all of these things like this, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, it's fine to put what you, you decide what a serving size is, and you decide how many are in there, and you decide how many calories that is, and I'm fine with all of that. But when some companies do it in a way where they use it as a direct comparison, and, and then you actually read the label, and I, I think people need to be careful of, of things like that and buy the product based on what it is and what they and what they like to eat. That's the other thing. I don't want anybody going out there. Like I talk about beans and rice as a good staple. But if you hate pinot beans, for the love of God, don't go, go buy six pails full of them. You know, what are you going to do with them? Um, there, there's better ways to do things, eh? You, you bring up a... Uh... Something else that I see in the industry quite a bit is, is the serving size, and, and we've worked closely with the FDA and the USDA. There, there are actually some guidelines for serving size, and when you're talking about a pinto bean, the serving size is pretty easy to come up with. It's, it's, it's already been decided. When you're talking about something like a freeze-dried strawberry, that's a little bit different. There's not as many guidelines about that, so you do have to be careful about serving sizes. Um, I think calories is probably the smartest way to do it, to, to really take a good look at calories. If you want to compare apples to apples, you, you should probably be looking at the ounces and cans and how many how many calories that that can actually holds, rather than saying, well, a can of strawberries in brand X is $5 cheaper. Brand Y might actually have a much better deal, but because of the amount of food stored in that can, the ounces per can, you may not really know what you're looking at. Yeah, because I've opened some cans, and it's a big number 10 can, but there's three inches of space in the, between the lid and the, the pile of food that's in it. And if you don't read that, you don't know that. Uh, so that's important to look at. The other thing I want to ask you about, again, because you're in this food industry, because I get this question all the time, how much is enough on a caloric intake for, let's say, fam typical American family of four, mom, dad, two kids, kids are, you know, 8 and 12, that range. What should they be budgeting per day in calories in their stored food if they're actually figuring out, I have three months or I have six months? Well, <clears throat> I think I think for me that answer would have a lot to do with <clears throat> what I'm trying to store for. If I'm trying to store for the, the, the most likely emergency in my life, which is, you know, maybe I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to probably store products that have the same caloric uh, needs that my family needs now. So, if, you know, if I've got a, a four-year-old daughter and she's consuming roughly 1,600 calories, that's what I should be storing for. When an adult's going to be 22 or higher, 2,200, you know, depending on, on ages and, and uh, a couple of other, um, you, can, you can get all that information right off of the USDH website of how many, what your caloric needs are per person. Um, <clears throat> but that's what you should be storing for, what you're eating now. Now, if you're talking about what's going to keep you alive, that could be much, much less. Again, that's, that really depends on what you're storing for, and I think in a perfect world, people would store over and above what they actually need because I think a lot of times what we don't think about is, yes, I'm storing for my family, but am I going to just lock up my doors and and when my neighbor comes over with her 
a starving three-year-old daughter, and they're they're obviously need. Well, of course you're going to help them, and you're going to you're going to wish that you had more, that you had above and beyond what you thought your needs were. So, storing for the worst case scenario of what keeps your family alive is probably the wrong way to do it, um, but it's it's a good start. And and of course, you you look at what people survive on in countries outside of ours, and 2,200 calories is definitely on the heavy side. That's not as needed. But and then you also take into account well, what time of year? Where do you live? Is this winter? Or are you having to have uh, your, your body working harder to produce heat and, and those types of things. So um, I, I think that there's so many factors that go there, but the easiest way to, 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 to answer your question is, well, what am I currently consuming? What does my family need? And, and how do I maintain that so that if it were something as, as, as small or, well, as simple as losing your job, uh, how would I maintain our, our quality of life and not now force my family to live off 1,200 calories a day? In there, you said one of the most important things I think that the prepper community needs to constantly hear because I hear this chatter on forums and, and boards and stuff, especially the, the weapon-centric forums and stuff all the time. Well, if, if, it, you know, if it hits the fan, then I'm going to just hunker down and I got my gun and I'm going to defend my stuff. And, and, and my, my thought is always, so you're going to let the 78-year-old woman down the road starve to death. You're really that low of a life form that you're going to look at some old lady who probably took care of you when you were a kid, looked after you when you're, you know, when your mom was away or something, and you're going to let her starve. And then this 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 clown will have a signature line like, you know, quoting Thomas Jefferson or 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 George Washington or Benjamin Franklin. And I'm thinking, you know, you are so far from the mark when you're thinking that way. Um, I understand that if we got in a really bad way. You, for a really long time, you can't help everybody, but I think having more than you need, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, my grandmother was the person that would, if the whole table was full, go get an extra chair and sit it there. There was always an empty chair at the table because someone might show up. And I think we need that because, I mean, I look at food, I look at commodities, I look at everything like money. And, and that is, if you're greedy with it, you'll never have a surplus. You just won't. I mean, you could ask me to explain it, and you can ask me to get all kind of uh, metaphysical or mathematical or whatever, and I can't do it, and I don't try, and I don't tell anybody else what to believe spiritually, but I believe if you try to hoard anything, you'll always be in short supply of it. And if you're generous, you'll always have more than you need. I heard a cool story about this the other day from one of our, our customers. Uh, she, she was down in the uh, Gulf Coast area during Hurricane Katrina, and where she lived, they, uh, everyone's trying to evacuate the city. And, uh, so the freeways just came to a standstill, as they always do. People waited too long and, and then they shut down completely. There was no way out. Well, her family had what they, they had a year supply was their goal and they had that. A lot of it was our, was our food. This is why I, I heard about it. She called and talked to us. And, uh, she said what happened was our house was right next to the freeway that shut down. Well, th- there was nowhere for these people to go. And, and for, I don't know how long it was, I actually, I would hate to suggest it. It was a couple of days, I know, but I don't know how long that she, she had them there. But they, they had nowhere to go, and so they, they opened the local uh, a church. I don't know what denomination it was. They opened the local church, and they started basically their own little soup kitchen with all their supply that they had, and they were able to feed. She didn't know how many hundreds and hundreds of people had come through there, but for that time, they had enough food to take care of everybody who came through that little church while they were in need. And I, I thought that is one of the coolest stories I've heard. She said they used almost their entire year supply for their family of five. Almost all of it was consumed in those those few days. But there were so many people who, who were able to have um, 
food during a time of crisis because she had overprepared for that emergency. And, and I thought, you know, that's, that's, I think, what we need to be thinking about is how, how do we help, you know, our, our, our neighbor when that time happens because most people don't think about this, and chances are your neighbors are not. And, and I, get, I get frustrated when I hear people say, well, I've got guns, and I'll just go find the people who do. I just don't think that's what's going to happen. I don't think it's very realistic either. That that farmer you think you're going to rob his silo would probably be happy to feed you and quickly put you in the ground if you come try to take it without asking. And and I think we need to understand that more. And uh, we are about at the end of the interview, and that was uh, that's about as awesome as a wrap up if I, as I could have asked for from you, Steve. Um, I, I really appreciate the work that you're doing and Shelf Reliance is doing, your support of the show. And I really appreciate you for being here today. I know we had to get some, put some work together to, to make our schedules align and be able to do this. But uh, thank you so much for coming out and uh, being on the show today. Jack, we, we feel the same way about what you do, and, and we appreciate your efforts to educate. I think so much of what we're both trying to do is just to show people how easy it is to actually be prepared and and the education is the key to, to really making sure that when that crisis happens that we're, we're ready for it and, and can take care of those around us. So we, we appreciate your efforts as well and, and just feel honored to be associated with, with your podcast. Oh, before I let you go, I almost forgot. You guys have like a, cause I get questions all the time. I was telling you before we got on the air. Um, I get questions all the time about, I bought all this long-term storage food. What do I do with it? You guys have a pretty cool cookbook that just came out about using prep style food, right? Yeah, I, I think that's the next question you get. I, you know, my friends and family that contact me, it's always, well, how do I start? What, what do I do? And we have a little planner, if you go on our website, that shows you how much food you're going to need, if depending on the calories that you're wanting to store. And then the next question, without fail, is what do I do with it? If I'm supposed to be using it and feel comfortable with it and familiar with it, what do I do? Well, we, we actually uh, went to uh, somebody named uh, Kelsey Nixon, a gal that worked for our company for uh, a time, and she's, she's now a a famous chef, I think she works for the Food Network, um, doing really well. But we, we had uh, Kelsey develop a number of recipes using our products so that people would be able to be familiar with them. And, and what people are surprised by is when you eat these foods, nobody is going to ever say, where did this come from? Is this out of like a, a can of food? It's going to taste as good as anything you've made from fresh ingredients. That's the whole goal behind this. Is to not have people wonder what you know. Where did this food come from? It, it should taste just as good as, uh, you know. Of course, a fresh strawberry right off the farm. There's, that's hard to beat. But you can definitely get pretty darn close having a freeze-dried strawberry prepared the right way. So this this cookbook, I think there's over a hundred recipes. It's it's more of a William Sonoma glossy finish. Just a, a beautiful cookbook. It's the first of its kind that I'm aware of that just really shows people how to utilize uh, their their food storage and know how to prepare with different ingredients like a freeze-dried strawberry, how do you make a pastry out of that, or and they're, they're, they're practical recipes. We spend about a week tweaking these recipes in a culinary school close by and had a number of chefs that came in and just really helped perfect all of them. Well, it's been a big hit. It's only been out for about a week, and we're selling many, many copies. Uh, we, we ordered thousands of them to begin with, and it's clear to us now it wasn't enough because this, this question's always been, once I have it, what do I do with it? And that, that book really answered that question. Well, awesome, Steve. And again, thank you for being here today. And folks, the website, of course, as I tell you at least once a week during the show mentions, is Shelf 
Reliance.com. That's shelf like something you put stuff on, not self like who you are. And uh, I'll include a link, of course, to today's show notes. I'll also include a link to that book, and uh, maybe you can get a copy before they're all gone. If not, I guess they'll end up back-ordered there, Steve, right? Well, probably short-term. We'll make sure we keep getting them in the pipeline. We'll order a new set if we need to. Great, great. And now with that, I will go ahead and sign off today. This has been Jack Spearco today along with Steve Palmer of ShelfReliance.com, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Revolution is you.